Welcome to the Golden Eagles podcast, celebrating the Marcelin Oak Legends Football Club, home of the mighty Eagles for more than 50 years. Our stories, our characters, despairs, and the triumphs. This episode is brought to you by Donellan's The Tyman, Don't Slip, Grip, and Woodridge Homes, homes built to water. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, 14th of July, 2020. Nick Burke. Well, Nick, it's great to sit down and have a conversation with you uh, about all things mass and all things footy. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, um, Nick, let's just go back to school days. Sport was something that was really important to you. Tell us about your time at Marsland. Sport was everything for me, Chris, at Marsland. Uh, it certainly wasn't my academic side of things. Um, uh, I went to Marsland, uh, grade five, 1974, and uh, went through Canterbury into the and then uh, over to Bulleen. Um, I had history at Marsland in terms of uh, I had a great uncle that was a Morris brother and. Uh, uh, the Burks had always gone to Assumption. I was supposed to go to Assumption when I left Canterbury uh, and board, but uh, I think my mother intervened. So I caught the tram and bus every day over to Bulleen, which was, uh, I felt like the, uh, you know, the salmon swimming upstream with all the other schools coming towards us. So, so yeah, that was my time at Marston. Uh, sport was everything. Uh, you know, cricket fed into football, fed into athletics. And uh, Marston was a school that... Uh, uh, gave you every opportunity in that regard. So I've my most fond memories are of sport at Marsland. I just just want to backtrack there as well because many of our listeners will know one of our most prominent contributors to our network, which is um, Richard Olive. So what's the connection with you and Richard Olive? Uh, Richard is my uncle and uh, my godfather. And so, yeah, Richard was one of the first uh, students at Marsland uh, back in the mid-50s. Uh, I think... He's the only student ever to get ducks two years in a row because he was too young to be admitted to university. Uh, so Richard's uh, extremely uh, intelligent and hardworking and uh, I know uh, the apple of my mother's eye. So your mum's Barbara Olive. Yes. So where did she come in the Olive um, clan? She was the second youngest and I think three years older than Richard. And she had three older sisters Then they all went to Siena um, and they grew up in Camberwell. And the oldest of her sisters, Lois, yes. has only recently passed away. Correct. So she's a matriarch. Uh, she was one of the initial students at Siena, a bit like Richard was at, at Marsland, and died earlier this year at the ripe old age of about 91, 92. Still got round, drove around, uh, mother of seven. She's fantastic. Well, uh, the other story is she's actually sat in this room and did an interview with, uh, with Richard, or had a conversation with Richard. That's right. Richard was very keen. Add for precious stories here, everybody. So Richard was very keen to record the story because there was such an age gap between the two of them. She was yeah. more like a, a maternal figure um, than a sibling, he yeah. would say. Um, and he said that at the time, up until her death, obviously, she was the oldest surviving Siena Old Collegian. That's right. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, anyway, it's lovely joining all the dots. Yeah. So Nick, sport, Campbell, all of us who went to Campbell will remember there wasn't exactly a lot of grass there to express yourself. It was pretty much during the day short of running down to um, Rathmines. Rathmines Reserve or up the other way to the cuttings there, you pretty much had cricket in summer and kick-to-kick kick in winter. Is that your memories of it? Yeah, and you think about it now and you go back to what uh, kids do in the school guard these days, it's like another world. I mean, those cricket nets were deadly at Canterbury, as you would have known. There were cork balls flying everywhere like bullets and you'd bat and you had no pads, no protection... <laughs> 
I look back now and think that was crazy. And then football season arrived and the, the footies would come out and you'd have kick to kick with these massive packs going up for marks and land, everyone landing on bitumen. But that's what you did. No one really thought about it. It was It's incredible to think about now. It was our form of resilience training, really, wasn't it? <laughs> it was, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we did get bussed over to um, Boleyn on a Thursday from memory and where we got to play organised sport and yeah. comp- competitive sport, inter-school sport. Yep. How important were those nets at Camberwell for you to developing your cricket skills? Well, that's where, that's where you, uh, yeah, baptism of fire in the, in the nets there and... I, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to become a batsman and um, you know, played in the, in the first 11. Uh, I got my first game in year 10, which was a great, uh, a great day when Brother Crispin tapped me on the shoulder. And uh, we had a pretty good side then. And then going forward into our year 12 year at um, 1981, we, we won the Premiership. Uh, and went through undefeated and, and uh, beat Assumption in uh, game eight, uh, effectively on the last ball. So uh, I look back now and say, thank God we did that because we lost the football by a kick. So if we had lost the, the cricket and the football in one year by small margins, and you know what it's like, year 12, there's no going back, there's no next week, there's no next year. Uh, yeah, we would have had to have lived with that for the rest of our lives. Football was bad enough, but... We, we had a very good cricket team. We had an opening combination of David Corrigan and Peter Curran, and they were fast and ferocious. I'm glad I didn't have to face them. Then we had a guy called Steve Lardner came in as our first drop bowler, and he ended up, Steve ended up playing district firsts. And then you know, we had Michael DiMatino, who, who kept for Victoria for about eight years with the gloves. Uh, we, we, we're a good side. And there was Chris DiMatino. Uh, was Chris playing in the first at that stage? Chris DiMatino batted four. Uh, so... Yeah, um, yeah, all the way through, we were, we were very strong. You, because uh, the, the Ages has um, representative sides, how did you go in the representative stakes, being the premiership? Were you the captain of that side? I was the captain in, in uh, my HSC year, uh, and we lost. Uh, but the year before, i never forget it, uh, I was selected in the AGS side along with the captain that year, Simon Price, who sadly passed away. Um, and... If you can believe this, in the rooms before the game, it was played down at Mentone on a green top, and they had a they had a guy, they had a fairly ferocious opening attack, a few guys by reputation from the Ballarat League, and there was no they didn't select any openers, so I forget who the coach was. He said, "Well, who wants to open?" And no hands went up, and Simon Price looked at me, and I looked at him, and he said, "We'll we'll open." We will, will we? We'll open. So I said, okay, well, let's do it. So we went out there and uh, away we went. And, um, yeah, we, we just went for it straight off the, the bat and survived. Simon got 40-odd. I think we put on nearly 100. And I uh, just went for it. And, anyway, I don't want to brag, but it's <laughs> one of my greatest moments. <laughs> I got 100, which is a real, a real thrill. Right. And, it, you know, at that stage, I thought the world is my oyster. It was the last 100 I ever got. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it, yeah. So, wow. And we had a great win, yeah. It's funny how you recall, and you're not alone, of course, but we recall a bag of goals we kicked or a wicket we took or a catch we took when we were 16 or 17 years old like mm. it was yesterday. Yeah. Um, I've always wondered about the psychology. Is it the actual yeah. sporting feat or is it the fact that it takes you back to a place which is such a formative part of your life and being around blokes? And it, does, it does, Chris. I mean, the, the impressions you have and, and events and even little things that happened 
uh, back then, you never never forget. I mean, as I mentioned before, we played Assumption in that round eight game. I think we won the toss because we batted first. We scrambled to about 154. It, they had a good, good bowling attack. And uh, I never forget the last ball that I, Peter Sheen, was batting. At about number eight, and Pete was a good little batter. Any other side, he would have been a first down or an opener. And uh, I never forget, he got a four off the last ball. And at the time, I, I thought, good on you. And I didn't realise how important that four off the last ball was because if he hadn't got it, we wouldn't have won. Because when they went into bat, they they it was tight all the way through, and they edged up, edged up to that one fifty odd. And Dave Corrigan bowled the last over, and I'll never forget it like it was yesterday. Uh, Ray Power was batting for them. Ray Power was a really good footballer. And uh, he took an almighty swing, I think, at the last ball. If he had it connected, it would have landed halfway up the hill at Marcelin. That would have been it. But Dave Corrigan was a bit too quick and bowled a Yorker and cleaned him up. And we won. I mean, I just, I, I'll never forget that, that moment and the relief that, that we won, thank God. As I said. What's we'll the, get to the footy in the moment. That, that, that's the other side of the coin. You yeah. know, I'm only here to talk about cricket. Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, another name in that in that conversation about Brother Crispin. Now, the, the, I don't want to be disrespectful or take things completely out of context. He was a character larger than life, and when we look back in history, will tell us he was also a very polarizing guy because he was very physical. Mm. He wasn't the only Maris brother mm. that was very physical, but he had fits of rage. Mm. Um, I witnessed it one day when I was going umpiring in a game and uh, gave a dodgy decision in Marcelin's favour, as it turned out. I thought it was a fair decision. Yeah. And I was copying... I, I, I had a broken arm, by the way. I would have been always playing it, yeah, I'm sure. No, but, um, and a couple of the... This was at Marcelin and a couple of um, the local... A couple of the boys from the grammar school, I forget, it might have been Mentone Grammar, I forget, quite rightly were giving me a spray for making a poor decision. And um, Crispin wasn't having any of that. And he walked past these kids and belted them. Mm. From the other, from another school, mm. and uh, that's the sort of guy he was. Yeah. Um, yeah. You couldn't do that now, of course. But he, um, what was the relationship that you had with him like? I had a, I had a fantastic relationship with him, Chris. Uh, but what you've just said, I knew that was always there. But because I was a cricketer, I didn't do maths, so you didn't have to teach me. Um, we enjoyed a, a really good relationship, and because we won the the AGS Premiership that year. Forever, you know, we'd, we'd be um, bonded in that way. But he was frightening. Uh, anyone that was at the school at that time would, would say that, I'm sure. But those guys that, that were taught by him probably, you know, swear by him in terms of um, w what he got out of them, which in a lot of cases was the best in mathematics. Sometimes I'd be in class and the door would just swing open and the teacher would look terrified at him. And he'd look and he'd say, Burke. And I'd have to go out, and he wanted to have a chat about selection. I never forget Dave Miles, or one one year, nearly, nearly fell over backwards when he opened the door. So I'd have to go out and go, oh, "What do you think about this week?" Ra ra ra, and I'd sort of give my two. So we, we had a good relationship. I could talk to him. I felt at ease in his presence, where a lot of other people didn't. And you know, I got that. And he had extraordinary academic results in his mathematics. Mm. I mean, back in those days, it was a three-term year. Yeah. So the legend went, and Romulus was the same, from what I understand. Mm. He'd teach the syllabus in term one, and then they'd teach it again in term two, and then do a revision in term three. Yeah. And just about every kid. And parents were, were begging for their kids to get into his class. Well, you'd see kids heading up from the ovals before the bell would ring, because mm. they knew they had to be in class when that bell rang. But, but I, do, um, I do recall, Chris, after we, the next week after we beat Assumption... 
we played Essendon and we, we beat them and then we, we went through the season undefeated and we had a, a celebration at uh, my house, our housing that night where all parents were invited back and all the players. And he came back and um, he had a really good night to the point where I think he drank himself to sleep. He had that much. But when he had a few under his belt, he opened up and you saw a sort of softer emotional side to him, uh, how pleased he was that we'd won. It was good. We'll get back to the episode shortly, but I wanted to take a moment to thank one of our dear sponsors, Danellens the Tireman. Danellens has a huge range of tyres and wheels at Melbourne's best prices. Situated in Blackburn, Collingwood, Preston, Baldwin and Paran, Danellens have over 60 years experience in tyres. Danellens really are the experts when it comes to tyres, wheels, brakes, suspension, wheel alignment and vehicle servicing. You won't receive better tyre service anywhere or find better tyre prices than at Danellens. And no matter what wheel or tyre you're looking for, chances are they'll have it in stock. But if for some reason they don't, they'll track it down for you on the spot. Whether it's in Australia or overseas, they'll make sure you have it in no time. It's all part of their commitment to serving you at the highest level. I'd like to thank Mark and Paul for their wonderful support over many years of the Marcelin community. Now, back to this week's episode. Because there's that funny story, and I know we linger around cricket a little bit, but Corrigan had the AGS record up until, probably, possibly still does, uh, in a spell of bowling on the Bray Oval. Nine for 23 at um, at Ivanhoe he took, but I think Ivanhoe had a player called Colin Kostorfsen, who I think had nine for less than that, I think. Um, not quite sure about that, but yeah, Dave Corrigan, he was terrifying. Had a sling action. And uh, at Ivanhoe that day, we batted first on a, a soft track and in the afternoon it hardened out, but it had the ridges from the ball in the morning. I pity the, the Ivanhoe guys, they didn't know what was coming. Does the legend go that the, there was a team directive that no one was to take the last wicket to bowl wide of, it, wide of the stump for an over so Corrigan could have a chance of getting the 10th wicket? Yeah, well, that's why. And, and, and what happened? Tell us what happened. I put myself on. And I bowled that three overs off spin about a metre wide and Mick Dimitina took them every time. And uh, he just couldn't get that last wicket. And then I thought, oh, we better do it. So I put Pete Curran on. I think first ball he bowled the guy. So that was that, which is a bit of a shame because Dave deserved to have a 10-wicket haul. So, Nick, just football. Okay, tell us about football. Back in the day, um, a lot of kids did both at the high level, but you were obviously at the very high level. Tell us about your footy journey at Marcelin. Well, I came on the back of that golden era at Marcelin in the 70s where you had Frank Marcazzani, not that I ever played with him, and you know, Tim Holmes and a lot of legendary players. Uh, and during those years, we went close, but assumption were just always too strong. Um, I played in year 11 uh, at Marcelin where assumption beat us by only about four or five goals. It was reasonably close, but Simon O'Donnell kicked 11. Um, and then the next year, we, we had a good side, obviously led by Peter Curran, uh, strong players all, all throughout. Um, we, we cleaned up all before us, practice matches, no problem. Got into the season, were beating sides by 20 goals every week, as were assumption. So we knew that our paths were going to cross again like they did in the cricket. And the day that uh, the game came, 
It was played up at Assumption, and I'll never forget it, nor will anyone else that was probably on that bus ride up. It was a perfectly sunny day in Melbourne. Clear skies. We thought, beauty, here we go. We had T-shirts on. Kicking the ball around on the number two oval, waiting for the bus. We got in the bus. We're heading up there. i never forget, we got about halfway over the hump going up to Kilmore, and the bus all of a sudden geared down a couple of gears. And I looked up, and you could barely see outside. We'd hit fog. And it was one of those days that happens in Kilmore. I know because my father used to tell me, he said it happened quite often when, when he boarded there that the fog would settle in, this is the middle of July, and just wouldn't lift all day. And so there was a sort of a pall over the bus. Everything went quiet. And we arrived, as we arrived, remember the under-15s were playing up there. And as the bus sort of drew beside the oval, you couldn't see from one side of the oval to the other. And this is about midday by now. And so that was all a bit odd. And so we, we got changed and all the school was watching. Assumption. We went out and it was a slippery, greasy ball all day. Um, it was close all day, you know, kick for kick from memory, goal for goal. And it got right down to the last quarter. And uh, I think we were a couple of goals down. We kicked a goal and we had a bit of momentum. We were up and about. And the ball went to the middle. And I'm pretty sure this is how the story goes. Uh, the ball, the ball was thrown up. Uh, Pete Curran, uh, you know, went up in the ruck, and the boundary umpire blew the whistle because someone had gone in the square, and uh, so the it was a Marcelin free kick, and a subsection player had gone in. Michael Dimentino, being smart, picked up the ball straight away, and played on and kicked it to me, and I marked it. I was probably 30 metres out, I think, and then the umpire said, "No, no, no, bring the ball back." The Ruckman's got to take the kick. Peter Curran's got to take the kick. So I kicked the ball back as the ball's in the midair going back to him. The sirens rung. So no time on was called for one. And does the Ruckman have to take it? I don't know. It didn't matter. Because when the siren rang, 500 Assumption school kids invaded the ground. And that was that. There was no nothing we could do about it. You know, we're throwing our hands up in the air, appealing to the umpire. But it was done. It was gone. And so you just have to live with that forever. It was... Uh, it was hard. I still remember it like it was yesterday. And every time, you know, a group of us get together and have a drink, it always comes up. Yeah. I don't know whether I would have kicked the goal, mind you. Maybe it was a blessing in disguise. If I'd have missed it. You would have liked the crack it at least. <laughs> yeah, I would have liked the opportunity to at least have a go, sure. Because yeah. when we had, um, it was interesting uh, a few years ago when we had one of our Friends of Free lunches, and so the room was filled with dignitaries from the school, the principals and, you know, and heads of sport and, you know, all that stuff. And we had a, we had a panel of Dimmer, oh, I forget, and a couple of other sportsmen. And by then, the rivalry had really shifted to Ivanhoe yep. v Marcelin in, this, in his era. And he sat there and he said, uh, you know, when I, um, when I played, I, uh, I hated uh, Collingwood. They were there. Yeah. And Essendon, I hated them even more. But above both of them was Ivanhoe Grammar. <laughs> front of the principal but the schoolboy passion and telling those stories like it was obviously he could still have that same passion and think about a game of footy that happened when he was 17 years old yeah, the Ivan thing goes way back that that goes back generations that's the old Catholics thing that, you know, 
Oh, I think the Ivanhoe boys are Catholic haters. Or it was drilled into them at an early age. So that's <laughs> well, the Protestant Catholic thing. Yeah. Anyway, we won't go into that discussion. But Nick, the um, and so you played. I, I just I should actually just. I just want to put an exclamation point on the cricket story. So you went and played Premier cricket, or dist, I think it was just district, district cricket, cricket at yep. that stage. You played yep. for Northcote, correct? Yep. And what's the highest level you got to at Northcote? Uh, played seniors there for for a, a short period of time. Played a lot of seconds games. But what I did do there, Chris, and it's probably my uh, one of my greatest claim to fame is I, I have the, still have the second, seventh wicket record partnership with a guy called Ian Callan, who played a test match for Australia. We put on 141 against Mount Waverley, and it still stands to this day from about 1986, I think, 84 or 5, I think. Did Ian Callan live up to his nickname? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Ferocious. Ferocious fast bowler. And I don't want to call it out in case Ian happens to be listening to this podcast, but it was a... It was a nickname that... Uh, Mad yeah. Dog. Mad Dog. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, it, not me. No, okay. no, everyone calls him Mad Dog, so it's not, not something that gets behind his back. Yeah. I wonder, do you still have... Do yeah, you yeah, still see- seeing those guys, yeah. Sure. Yeah, so yep. you get the North Korea unions and everything happen. Yep, yep absolutely. I love yeah. this story, and I know it's not a Marston story, but I love the story about Laurie and that prim- uh, that district cricket first final. Yeah. Tell us about that, because anyone who doesn't know this story but loves cricket... Well, I heard it firsthand, and when Northcote won the uh, district final in 65... 67, 66, 67, I think. Um, Essendon batted first and made 500 odd. And then Northcote had to go in afterwards. And Bill Laurie told the story at the reunion, the 50-year reunion a couple of years ago, uh, which which I, I was lucky enough to be at. And Laurie did. And the guys there that testified, this is what he said. He said... And um, Bill Laurie, by the way, is captain of Australia at this stage. Captain of Australia. And he went to them, he said, OK, if you guys can make 100 between you, I'll get the rest. And he got 271 not out. So he basically did it. He backed it up. <laughs> Batted for three days. Yeah. Yeah. So North Korea cricket, it's also been very kind. A lot of Marston boys have gone mm. off and played uh, Premier cricket there. And so what happened with your footy career at the end of... Uh, uh, oh, did you play AGS representative footy as well? Yeah, yep, yep. I, um, I was selected in the seconds. Um, and two, two teams played against the Ballarat schools at Essendon Grammar. It was a bog, just a mud heap. And I can't recall. I think we won. Yeah, yeah. And what happened? Okay, so after okay, so you finished VCE. Um, I'm just giving the sport thing. Yeah. We'll talk about your career in a minute. But um, uh, what what was in store? So you went and played Northcote cricket straight away. Yeah, went went straight to Northcote and played that. And what um, about footy? What happened? Then? Yeah, went to the old boys in '82 uh, under the coach Peter O'Donoghue, who sadly passed on. Uh, and we had an excellent year. We we came third in A grade. Um, and yeah, really good team. Uh, Bernie Cooper, you know, John Toomey in the ruck, Musha Ahmad, uh, you know, Tommy Butler, the, it, it, you know, the, the Holmes boys. It was a Crimmins. It was a team full of really good characters. And uh, yeah, I was an under 19 player, and I slot Tony Jones the year before had gone to play up at Tongala. So I filled that gap. Um, and uh, at, at- at full forward. At full forward, yep. Yep. And it was, I think there were four players like Mark Dallahunt, Mark Cooper, myself, Paul Dunnellan got a few games. So the four guys came straight from the, the schoolboy 18 straight into the, the seniors, which doesn't happen a lot, especially with the strong A grade club. So, uh, yeah, we, we loved it. And it's still probably you know, one of my favourite years of football playing, undoubtedly. Um, yeah, so the physical thing wasn't an impediment. I mean, A grade, you're playing against men at that stage at the age yeah. of yeah, I was. I, I mean, I was. I was sort of. What I had going for me was I had a good side, so I got plenty of delivery. Came, came in, 
and uh, I was a good kick. I was an accurate quick. So I could have an average game and maybe get six or seven touches, but I still get three or four goals. So that's how I sort of held my spot during those years, I think. And back in the day, Marston, everyone who looks at the Bray Oval now never really sees a blade of grass out of mm. uh, out of uh, its upright position yeah. and it never sees mud. But back yeah. in the day, it wasn't such this. It wasn't no, no, that, that lower side where the bank is, the water used to gather there was a bog. Um, yeah, I can't believe how good the ground is at Marsland these days. I never thought I'd see it like that. I, I always thought the soil was lousy, it was volcanic soil, and they could never get it to grow like they do over at Kerry. You know, we used to go and play practice matches against Kerry in cricket, and it would be like you were on another planet. I could never understand. But obviously they um, you know, got some good curators, and uh, now it's unbelievably good. Yeah. So you played amateur footy, and what, what's the most goals you kicked in a season, Nick? In amateurs? Yes. I think I... I th- uh, nine. In a game? Oh, no, ten. I got ten. Ten once. in a game? Ten in a game, yep. You're pretending yep. you can't, like, you can't <laughs> remember that, Nick. <laughs> you got no. double, double... I was dish. playing for old Zabs when I kicked ten against Uni Blues. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to old Zabs. So, uh, but aggregate for a season, what was the highest you uh, That was that first year, 82. I think I got 70-odd. Yep. Okay, I didn't win it. Uh, the guy from North Melbourne called John Dillon won it. I know that. But, um, yeah, that, that, that was a good haul for an under-19 kid. How many goals but, did you kick at Marston in the first in your first eighteen? One hundred and thirty. So and we had eight games, eight games and eight practice, so sixteen games. Um, but a couple of those games were against schools where, you know, it was like if I didn't kick a bag, I you know, should have been dragged. So yeah, but that's the tr- that's true. If we look back at Hudson and all those guys who kicked those goals. They had shocking games where they just cashed in. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. it's like batsmen who make. You know, they go and make a three hundred against yeah. on a road against the worst side in the world, and and but that's in the record books. But at least you've had the courage yeah. to admit it, Nick, that you kicked a bag. But but still, you had to kick one hundred and thirty goals. Yeah, it was it was a big thrill. I remember when I got that hundred. It was against Trinity at uh, Victoria Park and Q, and uh, yeah, it was it was big thing for me. Still got the footy, the the school. I think Ron Carlton got it mounted with a nice. I was very good at the school to do that. So. Still there. How supportive were mum and dad with your sport in terms of getting around and coming and watching? And- oh, yeah, they lived and breathed it. I mean, I was the oldest of a few boys, so mum was inevitably on Friday afternoon running them around, and, but dad would be at every game. Um, he'd never miss it, having been a player himself. So, uh, yeah, he still talks about that assumption game too, like I do. Although he's not as, not as <laughs> sad about it, being an old assumption boy, but, yeah. Because back in then you didn't, and I, 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 you never made the distinction that you and us and Assumption were from the same family, effectively. But we didn't look at it that way, did we? That we're we, out on our own back then. It was, yeah, it was like you, you would think we'd be brother schools, and there was respect. But there was, it was, uh, yeah, we knew you had to beat the other to get over the top. I mean, it's changed now. I mean, Essendon were pretty good back then, uh, but these days, yeah, man, I, sometimes I see schools winning the football, like Mentone or something. I think, my God, they were. They were nowhere near it back in our day, but your schools have got their act together. It's changed. Well, coming back to your footy career, so you played for how many seasons at... um, Played a couple of seasons. I played five seasons at Marsland over two stints. I went to Old Zabs in 1985. I had aspirations of maybe going back and playing AFL, VFL then, but that was delusional. Um, You said before that you tried out at Hawthorne. I played a year at Hawthorne Reserves. And then I left Hawthorne Reserves in 84 and came back. Marcelin were, um, you know, pretty keen. I wasn't getting a regular game. So I came back and played. We had a bad year. We, we uh, 
Oh, there's another memory I'll never forget. We beat Q in round 18 in a mud bog at Victoria Park. And we got off the ground and we thought we'd, we'd avoided relegation. And it was, this was you know, pre-mobile phones, so no one really knew what the other scores were. So we're all celebrating, singing the song in the rooms. And then the word came through that every other result had gone against us. And I know to this day, it's the I think we, we were a, a game and percentage out of the four and got relegated. So it's the highest ever winning, uh, winning amount of games to be relegated from A grade. And so that was obviously sad. And I went to Old Zaz the next year, which in hindsight wasn't a great thing to do, to desert the, you know, the ship, thinking, yeah, well, you know, I'll stay in A grade and go on from there. Well, Old Zavs got relegated the next year and Marceline got promoted. So Marceline had the last laugh. And I think I'm the, I'm the only player in Amateur's history to play in back-to-back -back relegated A-grade sides. <laughs> I don't know anyone else that ever has. Well, you should also point out by that stage, I think, uh, one of your brothers at least was at Xavier, is that right? Yeah, yeah two brothers that went to Xavier yeah. uh, back in the late 80s. And, uh, yeah, Matt, Matt was a good footballer. He went on and played for Marceline and then went on and played for Old Zavs and my other brother, Anthony. Play for old Zavs as well. Now, a lot of people who know amateur footy very well will know your um, pedigree as a coach, and probably more. And some people they may not even know your Marcelin, um background, but your Xavier background is very well known. Tell us about the circumstances of how you got involved as a coach uh, at Old Zavs. Well, in 1994, Zavs uh, uh, leading up to 1994, Zavs have been. In A grade, nearly, but not quite there. You know, thinking they were good enough, but they weren't. And then they appointed Barry Richardson as coach. I knew Barry, he was a family friend of our family, and my career was done and dusted by then. And he said, do you want to be the reserves coach? I said, yeah, sure. So that's where it started. I coached Old Zavs Reserves in 1994. And that was good. We had a really good side. And um, then the next year, Barry went and helped his mate Neil Balm at Melbourne as chairman of selectors. And I'd only coached a year of reserves. I was encouraged to apply for the position, which I did, but the club in its wisdom appointed um, a, a coach who had coached before and had more experience, which is fair enough and understandable. So I stayed around as reserves coach. Um, the club was suffering a massive hangover from winning an A-grade premiership and had a horrible start to the season, losing their first four games. And it, as is the way at Old Zavs, uh, if you're an outsider and you come in and not met with success, you're under the pressure from day one. And it got to round nine and Simon lost his position and I was asked to step in. And, um, you know, they had the players. They were just lazy and, uh, you know, dissatisfied and looking for all the excuses in the world. So I came in at the best possible time and fired them up and, and um, you know, they got going and the rest is history. We won the premiership. So I was lucky enough to have a premiership team in my first year. I had a very good group of players. I took them the next year and we just won again. So back-to-back -back premierships, but uh, both by less than a kick. So the gods were with us and I thought at that stage, I've used up all my luck, I need to get out of here. Um, otherwise, <laughs> yeah, I'll be sacked halfway through a season. So I, I, um, I, and I was just having children and all of that. So that was coming along at that time. So then the opportunity a year or so later came to coach the Victorian state team. So I grabbed that with both hands and that went well because it gave me an opportunity to keep my eye and keep in touch with coaching, but not have the full-time commitment. Um, so I coached the state team for the next eight years. Uh, a lot of great memories, had the best players in amateur football to pick from. You know, I could 
you know, having a Bernardinine as your rover, for example, was just you know, unbelievable. And, um, so yeah, got to got through that period, and then uh, I went on to the executive at the at the amateurs, and uh, ended up being president of the amateurs for a time there, and on to be the president of the Australian amateurs as well. So the best thing about that was all the people you meet from interstate, all the travel you get to do, trips to Ireland and everything else. It was, it was a great time. And then I was sort of, uh, you know, flip-flopped around for a couple of years, then got lured back to coaching by a good friend of mine, Simon Hunt, who was the president of Old Zavs. Old Zavs had gone a couple of years without a premiership, so it felt like an eternity for them. And I said, can you bring us? So I, I co-coached in 2013 with someone that I coached back in 1996, Dominic Berry. And we, uh, we won the premiership again that year. Again, had a very good side, won the premiership in Canada. And I thought, one year, that's enough. Okay, so that's three years as a senior coach and three A-grade premierships. That's what you're saying? Two and a half, to be exact. Yeah. Well, okay, you did it three, two and a half. <laughs> I always like saying, okay, uh, three premierships in two and a half years, it sounds better. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly does. And I know you said before, oh, I was lucky. But I think to motivate uh, a hungover premiership side halfway through a season and still win a flag, albeit one kick is an extraordinary achievement. Probably says a lot to your man management skills, I would. Um, oh, had the players. I mean, what makes a good coach? Good players. Chris, I know that better than anyone. But also, I brought up two players from the under-19s. One was James McDonald, who went on to Captain Melbourne, and the other guy was a guy called Daniel Donati, who anyone that follows football will know, he got drafted the next year to Richmond. Um, and they played an incredibly important part in us winning the Premiership, two under-19 boys. So you had an offer talent as well? Well, they were there to be selected. So, yeah. I wasn't chairman of selectors, so I can't claim that. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to wander into old Zaverian politics. It wouldn't be uh, a good thing to do as a, as a master and old boy. But this perception outside is that obviously they're very demanding for success. Uh, it wasn't always that way, but they're very demanding for success and they're pretty ruthless. So, But as a coach, sometimes you've got to make ruthless decisions. You know, you have a stalwart in the team that everybody loves, but keeping someone young, fitter, hungrier out of the side. How many of those decisions have you had to make? Quite a few. And they've meant that some players will never talk to me again. And that's what you've got to be as a coach. You can't be everyone's friend. And I had to retire blokes on the job. I said, I'm bringing in a younger guy. And they, they never could, never saw it. And when I was a player, I was probably the same. And there are blokes to this day that if I walk past in the street will not acknowledge me. That's, that's, what footy, that's what footy does to you. Yeah, oh, we all know the famous Sheedy um, Pickett. Was it Pickett that yeah. Sheedy yeah. had to make a call right or wrongly? And, yeah. Yeah, okay. So you've experienced that Absolutely. even at amateur footy. Yeah. yeah. What do you think, Nick, out of amateur footy looking back, and you've talked, you've obviously got an extensive involvement on and off the field, but what is it that you think brings people together in amateur footy or what is it that amateur footy has that, say, professional footy doesn't? Well, it's it's community. It's, um, you know, it brings a group of people together who otherwise may not have much else going on in their life for a variety of reasons. Some people are lonely, some people need an outlet, and it, it, it provides that for a lot of people. And that's what clubs do, and that, that's why clubs are great. A great place for people to go and become involved. In. A lot of people go through their whole life and just don't feel wanted or, or don't feel like they've got a home or somewhere to go to. And uh, that's the, these guys gravitate, and women gravitate to clubs for a player it's an opportunity to set yourself up with a with a network of friends and business acquaintances for the rest of your life um you know as opposed to players that perhaps go and play for money 
in one club here and there and all over the shop, I've always found that players that stay with their club, their old boy club, build up a lifetime of friendship and you've always got it. And I'm fortunate enough to be involved in premierships. So reunions come around and it's terrific. You, you always stay in contact with those guys and uh, you know, you're brothers for life. We'll get back to this week's episode shortly. This segment of the Marcelon Business Network podcast is brought to you by our good friends, Woodridge Homes. As a fourth generation builder, Adrian Gasparini and Woodridge Homes has over 40 years residential building experience. Specialising in bespoke custom-built homes, they never build the same home twice. With their office conveniently located in Eltham, Woodridge build all over Melbourne, but particularly in the eastern suburbs. Woodridge Homes specialises in building people's dream homes. Woodridge can help you plan and document your project from inception, refer you to suitable architects and designers, and provide building expertise and consultation on construction techniques and costs. Turnkey solutions, complete project plans and permits, demolition site clearing, house basement construction, interior design, swimming pool, landscaping and more. Thank you to Adrian and the team at Woodridge for their support. Now back to this week's episode. You were inducted into the VAFA Hall of Fame a few years ago. The Big V Hall of Fame, yeah, for Victorian, the, the state football, yes. Great. So, what was the what was the what was effectively the criteria for you being inducted? Uh, it was more. I, I did play um, in the Victorian team, um, but my playing uh, my playing didn't get me in. It was coaching, coaching eight years, so it was longevity, and we had a pretty good run through that time. Um, I coached against the countryside on four occasions, and I only won once, so I didn't have a you know a clean sweep by any stretch of the imagination. Um, had one great win against the uh, the country by 10 goals, where Bernard Dedean was best on ground. So, yeah, lucky enough to be inducted into that very exclusive club. Yeah. just want to talk about Marcelin for the moment. But back in the early 90s, um, you were probably at a... The club was probably at a fairly low point. Tell us a little bit about the circumstances around that. Um, well, I came back to Marcelin in 1990, and we actually uh, had a really good year. We, we ended up third in Agra, lost the prelim. You know, had the Amad boys, Simon Lennox, uh, we had some very good players and uh, had a good year. Michael Peacher was our coach and the club in its wisdom decided not to reappoint him. He was teaching at Marston. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, Mark Dallahunt and Matt Getson, Mark Cooper, it was, it was a really good side. And then Neil Laliva came and coached it. The next year we were in, you know, we didn't... I think it was sort of mid-rung, and then Murray Brown came in. Murray was a really good coach, still you know, no one like Murray to this day. But it didn't quite work, and we were just on the slide a little bit. Lost lost a good, you know, a few good players to money. Simon Lennox went to Paran. Joey Ahmed went to Paran. And then all of a sudden we found ourselves, you know, we, we, we dropped a C grade, and then the club sort of fell out. And I was in 1993, I was secretary of the club. Matt Getson was president, and we were both playing. And I think there were other players on the committee at the time. And you know a club's in trouble when the committee's stocked full of players. It just doesn't work. And uh, unfortunately, the club sort of you know, dropped down to C grade and took a while for them to get out of it. But you know, to the club's credit, they did. And seven years later, eight years later, won A grade. And you were still very involved in that as an amateur participant, but mm-hmm. not as a Marcelin person when they won that A grade premiership. Yep. So Bernard Denise come up a couple of times in your conversation. 
Tell us about Bernie. I know we don't like concentrating on individuals in team sport, but he was something else, wasn't he? He was something else, Chris. When I coached that country against the country in 2001, that game I mentioned before, the first quarter was played at such a fast and furious pace. It was beyond what any amateur player has probably ever experienced to that point. The country were good. We were good. Every time you got the ball, there was no time to think. The closing speed of the opposition was probably above and beyond what anyone had ever done. So getting your hands on the ball and getting a clean possession was darn nigh impossible. And I remember walking onto the ground and we were taking stats. And I said, what's happening? And I looked at the stats and most of our blokes had hardly touched the ball. And these are you know, the highest ranked players. And Bernie Denina had 15 possessions. And I thought, my God, that, that that's phenomenal. And, and he did it that day. And my other... Good memory of Bernard Denis was one of the best goals I've ever seen. When Marcelin won that A-grade flag, they uh, that was on the back of six consecutive A-grade flags by Old Zavs, and Old Zavs got defeated by St Kevin's in the um, in the semi. And the Old Zavs blokes say, and my brother says, it, said they wouldn't have beaten Marcelin. They wouldn't have won a seventh if they had got through, because I said Marcelin at that time the planets aligned. I never get it was a strong breeze from the north. Going to the south, I never get in the second quarter. Bernard Denine scouted the pack, full ball, took it off a, a, a crumb, and kicked it into the teeth of the wind from about forty out with his left foot. Got a goal. It was phenomenal. One of the best I've ever seen in amateur football. It, we look back on that. I was there that day, and uh, I think Simon Dalrymple was the coach. Yep. Um, Simon, of course, has gone on to do great things in AFL. Yep. Um, Dalrymple family, great sporting family. Um, and then you had guys like Steve O'Flynn yeah. and uh, Trigan Owen, who's yep. who the captain of that side. Yep. Uh, Caffrey. Yeah. Uh, just all those blokes. Like I said, it all came together. You had a really good, driven coach and had those good players. And, and they, yeah, they, they were bloody good that year. When we look at the boys historically in terms of the club, the club's been where it is now before. Mm. And it found its way out. Yep. Not by, yeah. um, not by anything other than just hard work and a commitment to being together as mates, essentially. Exactly. There's always a, you know, when a club does sort of, you know, hit the, uh, you know, bottom out a little bit, and Marsland's sort of mid-tier C grade, which is as low as they've been in probably four or five decades, um, it's surprising how quickly it can be turned around. Um, You know, get your act off the field is, is what you've got to do first, and then I generally find on the field follows. Um, so, you know, whilst it might feel, you know, like for some Marcelin people, you're a long way from it, uh, you never are. You can, you know, things can turn around very quickly. In this COVID year, I know people are going to be listening to this beyond 2020, Nick. They're going to be listening to this story in mm-hmm. years to come. But we're in 2020, and the, this COVID year has seen a historical moment in the cancellation, cancellation of a season. Now, I'm assuming that's happened during wartime before, but how close do you think the amateurs got to actually going on with the season? I think, yeah, if you had to ask me uh, in mid, getting on towards late June-ish, I thought, yeah, it's going to happen. I thought there, there was pressure from the bigger A-grade clubs to play. I know there's a number of clubs in the lower divisions that were fearful and might, might not have been able to take the field. But the bigger A-grade clubs all wanted it. But it depends on who you speak to. You speak to players and coaches and they all say, yeah, we're up for it. You speak to a lot of the volunteers and people on the committee and presidents and secretly they out of the corner of their mouth say, God, I hope we don't go ahead this year. Because raising money for sponsors and the likes is incredibly difficult. 
And even though it's a you know, shortened season, it still takes money to get, get on the ground. So I think a lot of people are relieved. But I, I genuinely thought they were going to get going. But then what happened, well, just I don't think anyone sort of expected that it would happen. Uh, what do you think is going to happen to amateur footy in 2021, assuming that there is a season? 2021 what? will be interesting for amateur football because I think there will be a flood of players come into amateur football who have played for money the year before. Uh, I think there's not going to be the money that there was in country and suburban football. So there won't be the incentive to players to play, and a lot of them will say, I'll just go back to my old boys club uh, rather than you know, play for you know, a small amount of money. So I think there will be an influx. So that will become a management issue for clubs with points. Uh, obviously, if they went to the school, it's only one point, but if they didn't, then it can be five or six. So you can't have them all come back. So clubs will have to manage that. And they'll also have to manage... Uh, not bringing too many in at once. Otherwise, you'll lose the soul of the club and guys that have been there and trained their guts out for years and years, if they're starting to get bummed out for a game, well, that, that's not right and that won't work either. So you've got to strike a balance. Sure, getting a couple of good players in is good, but you've got to get that balance right. Nick, um, just we're nearly there and I really appreciate your time, really do. We, you, you've, you've told us that you've got two growing up beautiful daughters. Yep. Career-wise, what did you do after school? I've always been involved in property, Chris. I was a real estate agent. I studied at RMIT. Um, I had my own business for a while, uh, property development. Um, and I've worked for a few sort of listed entities. And at the moment, I've got my own consultancy where I put together property deals, uh, advise on property and the like, predominantly around the development side of it. That's always been the area that I've focused on. Because Dad was in property as well. Father's always been a valuer, yep. Uh, yeah, so I kind of followed in his footsteps to a degree. It's a, there's a lot of great Marcelin property names, isn't there? Families around Yeah, yeah. A lot, 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 lot of, yeah, in construction, uh, agency. Uh, you see names on boards everywhere and you go, oh, I recognise that name, he plays for Marcelin. So, yeah. Nick, you've been very instrumental. We've had our cohort, of, which is the class of 81, has had... I think two or three significant reunions, and you've been a real driving force behind that. Yeah, we've got another big one next year too. Yeah, we won't talk about that yeah. anniversary. Some yeah. of us, um, some of us, most of us have still got our hair. I think you yeah, and I. Yeah. Think, yeah. I don't know what yeah. it is about. Oh, I was no. losing hair. I'm going grey. Is it? But you've been driving. So why do you still feel that connection with your old school? It's the friends I've still got. I mean, my group of friends is still the group of friends I hang around with forty odd years ago. You're you're part of that. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I see and hear of guys that went to other schools and they've lost touch. Um, they, uh, they don't have reunions. I think they're poorer for it. So, um, yeah, we've got a group. We, we, you know, we have a you know, Christmas dinner every year. And there's about 15 of us, who, you know, depending on who's, who's around. And I think at the reunions we've had also, you bump into guys at reunions that haven't spoken to in 30-odd years maybe. But you got that connection and you pick up the conversation from where you left it. You know, they might have hated your guts then, but sort of, you know, like they see me as a jock, a sporty guy. But sometimes you'd speak to guys at these reunions that you never spoke to at school. I'm, I'm Facebook friends with a couple of guys that I never spoke to at school, but somehow now I'm sort of part of their lives. I, yeah, it's, it's weird how life goes. Like that. Yeah, well, that class of 81, I mean, I have three brothers, uh, one the other side of me and two ahead of me. Um, don't share... They have fond memories of Marcelin, no doubt. Mainly friendship fond memories. They don't necessarily have the fond memories of it as a yeah. as a place of learning. Um, but we sort of... 
I think you talk about stars aligned. I think it did in that class of '81, didn't it? And sport was obviously a very important part. Of yeah, it. that was a big part of it. Yeah. Um, but we also had some amazing academic guys who've gone on to do mm. extraordinary things mm. as well. Definitely. And we should celebrate those. And I know the foundation, my work in the foundation was great. One of the great things that the foundation is continuing to do was to actually celebrate those stories. Yeah. Because, you know, the Hall of Fame of photos of footballers at Marston is all very nice. Absolutely. But, but by the same token, you know, we've got... As uh, four or five doctors out of our year, a couple of lawyers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We've got, and that famous story that Richard yeah. and his mates tracked down about... This guy called Ken Fraser, yeah, who went to 1950 and was one of the team that developed the black box. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Yeah, so, yeah. so Nick, thank you. Thank you for giving me this time. It's great sitting down and having this conversation with you. Pleasure. Thank you, Chris.